The Weekend Warrior, every Saturday morning from 7 a.m. to 9 a.m. On ESPN LA 710. Dedicated to you, the fan who works hard all weekend, slugs it out on the court, the field, the big box store, and the honey-do list all weekend long. And helping you cope as you come to the realization you're not 19 any longer. Here's board-certified orthopedic surgeon Dr. Robert Clapper. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. So glad to have you each and every Saturday. Today's topic is off the charts because my guest at 815 is Jason of Jason of Beverly Hills. He's a jeweler who's an expert in making championship rings for athletes. He also makes jewelry for everybody else. But I'm pretty sure... The professional athlete isn't interested in the championship or the trophy as much they're interested nowadays in winning a ring. When I knew he might guest, I started to think hard. Where in the worlds that I love, that I live in, of art, sports, and surgery, do we see the power, the message, the meaning of a ring? just like winning a championship. Well, nobody has won more championships in the world of basketball than Phil Jackson. So when he writes his biography, it's called 11 Rings. And the cover is a photograph of all his rings. Phil Jackson borrowed from his love of the way the Native American felt about rings, the teepee, their home is a ring, the campfire, the village. And when he joins the Lakers, the motto of the team was to hold hands before the game would start, make a circle of players, and the chant was one, two, three, rings. He used the symbolism that he learned from growing up in Montana near reservations of Native Americans. He saw the profound meaning of a ring. So here's an interview with John Sally and Phil Jackson. where We hear Phil Jackson teach Michael Jordan. It's about being a ring of teammates. You need to assist the players on your team so they can help you win a ring. You can't just win the scoring title. Listen to John Sally talking to Phil Jackson. In reading your book, it explains to me why everyone thinks Michael Jordan is the greatest. Uh, Because you do. (laughs) No. (laughs) No. Uh, And I I guess because I went against you so many years that I had built up uh, a resistance on thinking how great Michael was until I read it in your book, the ways he would think, the way he would readjust. And one of the things, I'm so happy that the guys didn't read the book yet because they're going to be using this now, is Tex Winter would yell to Michael, there's no I in in team. And Michael would say, yeah, but it is in win. And there is an I in ring. And that's the funniest. (laughs) As is, that right there is the best line. And I, I could imagine MJ saying that. But you were able to get this kid to become better than he already was. How do you do that? Mm -hmm. 
it was an expansive view. Michael had a limited viewpoint of his own teammates. And you see, you know, the foibles, the weakness of your own teammates. You're with them all the time. And, you know, at some level, you have to say, you know, this guy's really good. He does this really well. He does, he makes timely shots. He makes good passes and whatnot. We're not going to focus on the fact that maybe he can't handle the ball under pressure. Maybe he gets a little nervous taking the ball inbounds. Maybe there's a defensive lapse. He doesn't move his feet quick enough in this situation. We'll cover for him because that's what we are. We're a team. Hmm. Initial conversation I had with MJ was, you've been averaging 37, 38 points a game. You've been winning MVP awards, but you're not getting there. And I don't think anybody who won a scoring championship has also won an uh, NBA championship. And that's the most important thing, right? Right. So we established that. And then I said, so I want you to realize you're not going to be getting as many touches or taking as many shots. So listen to how Phil Jackson is teaching Michael Jordan how he has to change. Because at his Hall of Fame speech, he gives credit to Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson, Michael Jordan for having the insight. And yet, he's giving him the insight. He completely contradicts himself. I love it. Said 32 points a game. I can do that and still win, a cha- uh, win the scoring title. That would be no problem for me. And take five points off my average or whatever, you know. I said, well, that's only three or four shots, isn't it? Well, he said, maybe it's five or six. But <laughs> anyway, the idea that I brought to him was the spotlight's always on you. And so what happens, you get against a good team like Detroit, and that spotlight's on you. You have the ball. The ball's the spotlight. Play as a ring. Play with your teammates. And he buys into it. And as soon as you put it down on the floor, they have three guys that collapse on you. You're not going to get there. So we have to abuse you as a decoy at certain times in the game where people will go with you and other people will have easier shots. And you have to trust your teammates to be able to make them better. And you'll be able to do that. And he bought into it. He bought into it because he taught him. But now listen to the Hall of Fame speech where he gives credit for Michael Jordan having the insight already, which is not true. My thanks to Jerry's, both Jerry Reinsdorf and Jerry Krause for trusting a person that was inexperienced to take over the Chicago Bulls team that roared to some great successes in the decade of the 90s. It was a result, of course, of the magnificent play of Michael Jordan, who had the insight to incorporate his teammates, those lesser angels, into his realm also to Scottie Pippen, who is a dynamic duo alongside of Michael Jordan. Both of them great offensive and defensive players. That Michael Jordan had the insight. No, he didn't. But it just shows you the Zen master, the psychological genius of Phil Jackson using metaphors. You think Clapper vision's great? Forget about it. Phil Jackson's got the ultimate Jackson vision. By using the ring as a metaphor. What about in the world of art, the world of music? Well, it's this song. Beyonce. 
She writes a song about if you like it, put a ring on it. That's the whole idea. The message in a ring. So listen to her talking about, hey, I got married. I finally achieved it. And I want other women to understand the power of a ring. I'm a single lady. Now put your hands up. Up in a club. club just broke up. I'm doing my own little thing. Single ladies. It's basically put a ring on it. I feel like it's something that a lot of women go through every single day. And they'll finally have their anthem. And uh, once again, the guys are going to be upset with me. I'm a woman. I'm married. I'm married. I got a ring on it. So it made me think all week. Where the hell did this ring come from? The whole idea. Well, it's 3,000 years old. Listen to this. The tradition of exchanging rings dates back 3,000 years ago. Egyptian pharaohs were the first to use rings to represent eternity due to the circle not having a beginning or ending. The shape also reflects the sun and moon, which the Egyptians worshipped. The space in the middle of the ring represented a gateway to the unknown. The Egyptian Ouroboros rings portrayed a serpent swallowing its tail, representing the eternal cycle of things. The Ouroboros is one of the oldest symbols in the world, and its name means tail devourer in Greek. So it starts... Once we become civilized as Egyptians 3,000 years ago, then Alexander the Great comes and the Greeks continue the tradition. When Alexander the Great conquered the Egyptians, the Greeks adopted the tradition of giving rings to their lovers to represent devotion. Many of these rings depicted Eros or Cupid, the god of love. When the Romans conquered Greece, they picked up on this tradition as well and began using iron and copper rings in marriage ceremonies. The iron rings sometimes had key motifs to symbolize that the wife now had control over the household goods. By the second century, however, most rings were gold. Gold rings became more fancy over the centuries because they showed up how rich the giver was. Here comes my favorite part where why do we wear the ring on our ring finger of our left hand? The Egyptians, who did not dissect human beings, they dissected animals to understand anatomy. And it wasn't until 1543 where the first anatomy textbook by Vesalius in Italy dissected human beings, which the church forbid, by the way. He got into a lot of trouble for this. But until then, we had the worst understanding of anatomy of a human being. And listen to how incorrect the Egyptians were. Those Egyptians were really good at choosing symbolic reasons to wear the rings. They decided that the ring finger contained a vena amoris, or vein of love, which led directly to the heart. The Romans were all down with that belief as well, which just goes to show you that neither knew any anatomy because it's not true. But we're still rocking that tradition. <laughs> we're still rocking the tradition that is completely baseless. After a few hundred years, medieval Europeans started putting rubies in their rings to symbolize passion, sapphires for the heavens, and diamonds for steadfast strength. Around the 1600s, couples started wearing bands during the engagement period. During the wedding ceremony, the groom placed his band on the bride's finger, uniting the wedding bands in a match set. Also in the 1600s, we started to see poetry inscribed inside and outside of the wedding band. So for thousands of years... Women are wearing a wedding ring, engagement ring, wedding band, but men are not. When did men start wearing a wedding ring? This will surprise you. 
In the 12th century, the Christian church declared marriage to be a holy sacrament and established a church ceremony. Rings were a part of the ceremony, and it became the rule that no man should place any type of ring on a woman's hand unless he meant to get married. Before this, rings didn't always signify marriage. They're often given as tokens of devotion or to represent betrothal. This is when two types of rings emerged, the engagement ring and wedding ring. Now, women have been wearing wedding rings for thousands of years, but it didn't quite catch on for men to wear wedding bands. So when did men start wearing wedding uh -huh. bands? Aha! 3,000 years, women are wearing a ring. 1940, World War II. Shocking! It wasn't until World War II that men started to regularly wear wedding rings. The tradition only caught on when American and European soldiers wore wedding rings as a way to remember their wives and sweethearts back home. The tradition continued through the Korean War, and after this, wedding rings for men caught on among civilians. Now, remember when I mentioned that back in medieval times, people started using precious stones in their rings? Well, up until the 1940s, diamonds were just one of many gems that people used as engagement stones. Their wild popularity is mainly due to De Beers. De Beers is the South African company that harvests the most amount of diamonds in the world. Well, they saw their numbers of diamonds dropping off their sales in the 1930s during the Depression. So they decided we're going to market us ourselves even better. Oh, my God. Listen to what happens next. But the diamond company that controlled the majority of the world's diamonds at the time. When people stopped buying diamonds during the economic downturn of the 1930s, De Beers launched an epic marketing campaign. They showered diamonds on Hollywood actresses like Marilyn Monroe to make diamonds glamorous symbols of romance. De Beers also came up with the still popular slogan, Diamonds are forever. And De Beers' marketing campaign worked like crazy. Yeah, listen to these statistics. In the U.S. alone, the percentage of brides who received a diamond ring jumped from just 10% in 1939 all the way up to 80% in 1990. Once De Beers started marketing in China, the percentage of Chinese brides who received diamond engagement rings jumped from nearly none in 1990 to more than 50% in 2019. Wedding rings symbolized commitment, love, and devotion, and in the past, they signified a contract between the couples and their families. They were tokens or even security deposits that showed a man's promise was as good as gold. In the world of art, in the world of music, Beyonce said it best. If you like it, put a ring on it. Get married. Do it the right way. In the world of sports, it's not the trophy. It's not the championship. It's not the banner. It's the damn ring you're going to put on your finger. And the man who designs these rings better than anybody else, Jason, is going to be our guest. Coming up next, right here on the Weekend Warrior Show on 710 ESPN. Check this out. Weekend Warrior is on the air. From the epicenter of sports in the Southland. ESPN LA 710. With Dr. Robert Clapper, board-certified orthopedic surgeon at Cedars-Sinai Health Associates. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. My mother is felling in heaven right now when you say that. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper, <laughs> Renaissance man, surgeon, sculptor, smoother. Gee, Lord have mercy. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. I'm so excited to talk to my next guest because he marries the world of technology 
and the world of art better than anybody else in the jewelry business. Jason, thanks so much for waking up early to be with us. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> Listen, I want to play a soundbite, and I want, I had a professor in surgery, Dr. Ranawa, teach me, the eyes don't see what the mind doesn't know. Well, our ears don't hear what the mind doesn't know. So when you hear this soundbite of tradition, of meaning, the power, emblematic, it's more than just a gold band. I'm curious what you hear, Jason. Let's listen to this soundbite. The tradition of exchanging rings dates back 3,000 years ago. Egyptian pharaohs were the first to use rings to represent eternity due to the circle not having a beginning or ending. The shape also reflects the sun and moon, which the Egyptians worshipped. The space in the middle of the ring represented a gateway to the unknown. The Egyptian Ouroboros rings portrayed a serpent swallowing its tail, representing the eternal cycle of things. The Ouroboros is one of the oldest symbols in the world, and its name means tail devourer in Greek. You are a ringmaster, Jason. What does that mean to you, that tradition going back to the Egyptians, then the Greeks, the Romans? What does making a ring mean to you? Well, making a ring is, is like capturing a piece of history, capturing a moment in time. So when we make these rings, it's more than just an ornate piece of jewelry. It's more than just you know, a piece of gold with some shiny rocks on it, it has a meaning. Hmm. It, it, it captures a moment in time. And I think that dating back even to thousands of years ago, that's kind of what it was back then, too. Hmm. It was a symbol of something, a symbol of life, a symbol of something great, a, system, a symbol of history, a symbol of a person's uh, an epic moment in life. And I think that's exactly what the ring symbolized to this day. Hmm. So when these players, and we're making these championship rings for some of these players, and they look back 30 years later after winning it, it brings back memories of a moment in time. Hmm. And, and I think that that's what makes making these types of rings so special. Oh, it's awesome. Jason, before we go any further, I want the Weekend Warriors to know all about you. So take us through your history. Where did you grow up? What your mom and dad do for a living? And how did this all happen to you? that you fell in love with actually memorializing in jewelry a memory? Well, you know what? My history started with me never knowing that I was actually going to be in the jewelry business. <laughs> I, was born in, yeah, I was born in Iran, moved here when I was to the States when I was three years old during the revolution in Iran, mm -hmm. came over here with two immigrant parents, one from Iran, one from Norway. Neither one of them spoke English very well. Uh, both spoke in broken English, came over here, grew up with the intention of being a, a, a lawyer. That was what I was groomed to be. I was good in school. I was supposed to be a lawyer, but everything changed my sophomore year in college. <laughs> when I was a sophomore in college, I was $28,000 in debt. I was too scared to tell my parents that I actually wasn't there, and I couldn't even afford the minimum payment on my credit card. <laughs> so what was I going to do? Well, I wasn't somebody that could work at Baskin-Robbins scooping ice cream for a living because, one, I don't I don't think I never envisioned myself working for somebody else and two I wasn't going to make enough money to even cover my credit card payment so what I did was I I went with a friend to the downtown wholesale district in Los Angeles and I noticed that there was an area where you could buy plastic hair clips and silver trinkets by the dozen and I said you know what I'm currently at UCLA studying to be an attorney where you have a plethora of young women that would love this stuff 
but I need to figure out how I'm going to make a business of it. So I took my last $368. <laughs> I went over there and bought seven dozen classic hair clips, silver trinkets, butterfly clips for the hair. And I went to UCLA and I said, guess what, guys? I want to get, start a business on campus selling these items to girls. They said no immediately. Well, I'm a persistent person. And I said, you know what? How, how about uh, why don't you try to harness my entrepreneurial spirit? That's what college is all about. You're preparing me for the outside world. What better way than allowing me to come over here and, and, and be a businessman earlier than I have to be? And I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll give 20% back to the school. Well, with the second I said that, they said, sounds good. Let's do it. Wow. So they gave me, they gave me a six-foot table, and I was allowed to – to sell to the girls on campus, the people would come, buy whatever it, it is that they wanted. I'd give them a receipt. They'd go inside the student store, pay for it, and come pick it up. And the hotel would give me a check at the end of 30 days minus 20, their 20%. Wow. Well, guess what? That, fir- that first week, we, that first day, I did $800 in business. <laughs> You've got to remember, you're just- for at the time was 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 yeah. a tremendous amount of money you're talking about 20 years ago right. so i was like wait wait a minute this is this is this is great money oh, well wow. before long by the time i was a college senior i had six college campuses going at the same time with some campuses two locations on the same campus i would hire students and i was making more money than most attorneys make coming out of harvard law school wow so at that at that moment my father was expecting me to go to law school well <laughs> i didn't I, I was I said, Dad, you know what? I'm making more money. He said, you know, this is not this is not a real career. He did not talk to me for two and a half years. No, said, this is not a real. Yeah. He said, this is not a real business, not a real career. His vision of me was to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. And I was neither one of those. I was a peddler of uh, silver trinkets, plastic hair clips. And he said that that was not a career. And you know what? I might have agreed with him if, if it was my own son. But I had bigger and greater, uh, bigger and greater dreams wow. at the time i was if i was making at the time i was probably making two three hundred thousand dollars a year which was what what college student makes that kind of money that's <laughs> equivalent of today making six seven hundred thousand dollars a year wow. as a college student wow but if i made if i made 30 grand in a month i spent 30 grand in a month and what did i do how did i spend that money i was going out to nightclubs i was out partying i was doing everything a parent would would dread their child doing <laughs> But in the process, I was probably doing my most, the most important marketing strategy of my career because during that time, I was partying next to the Hollywood's elite because I, would, I, was, I was at the same level as them. I was spending the way they spent. I might not have had as much money, but I was in the same place at the same time doing the same thing. And as a result, I started making friends, and I started making friends with lots of NBA players. And I noticed a lot of these NBA players were wearing big diamond jewelry and stuff like that. So I befriended some of them. And I said, hey, Anthony Mason at the time was playing for the Milwaukee Bucks. I said, hey, I'm gonna make, I want to make, uh, make you something. I want to design you something. He said, come to my hotel tomorrow and bring all your diamond jewelry. Well, guess what? I didn't even know one thing about diamond jewelry. I didn't have a single piece of diamond jewelry. So I copied and pasted a bunch of pictures I got from the Internet, made a makeshift catalog, went over to his hotel the next day at, four, at right after his shoot around. Wow. And I showed him a bunch of pictures. He said, where's your, your merchandise? I said, I, I do everything custom order. Oh my he God. picked the bracelet. I charged him 40000 Had no clue how much this thing was going to cost. He gave me a $20,000 deposit, and I had to go find someone to actually make this thing for me. <laughs> so I, I went, I made it, I made my first sale. I went to the jewelry district. I asked around. I had a company make it for me. I made my first sale. You fast forward to today, we have over 300 NBA players, over 
600 professional athletes, and we've done championship rings for teams, and we have stores worldwide. Jason, let me tell you something. I'm old enough to be your father, but I got to tell you, I am so proud of you. It's just an unbelievable story. The hell with the rings that you're making. It's you that's so, so fascinating. It, I Listen, I grew up in Far Rockaway, New York. All they told me was, you can't do this, you can't do that. That's for the other people. And I kept saying, why can't I do it? Well, because nobody from this neighborhood gets out of this neighborhood. And here I am, an orthopedic surgeon at Cedars-Sinai for 33 years following a dream and it's just you're inspiring just to talk about I don't want to talk to the players that get your rings I want to talk to you that's amazing well there's a certain level of artistic uh, bend to all of this so where does that come from Jason to be able to creatively put things together is it because you're really not trained as an artist so you can come up with any idea with no restrictions where does the artistic bend come from? Well, I think you hit it right on the head when you said that. And that's what I always tell people. I've always been naturally a creative person. I've always been an artistic person. I always loved to draw. I was, you know, I had a scholarship to go to an, uh, uh, an art high school, which I never took my took up on because I felt like it, you know, at the time, you know, you're, you're, you're a 13 year old boy and you're like, well, you know, art is for wimps. Like, mm-hmm. that's not a real thing. I got to be an athlete. I got to mm-hmm. be like, I had to be a man's man, mm-hmm. you know, so to speak. So mm-hmm. I never, t- I never went there because I felt, I felt like the stigma that came with it didn't fit in with what my friends expected of me. Mm-hmm. So I never did that, but I always inside enjoy drawing when I would be uh, my, upset at my father. I'd go in my room, lock myself up and start drawing. And I was in that and I never thought it would lead me anywhere. Hmm. And it wasn't until I was, you know, in my 20s where I found a use for it, where I found a gateway to be able to express myself in drawing. And when I did my first piece for, for different athletes that were buying pieces, I literally used to sit down at night and draw hmm. an idea hmm. without knowing how it was going to be made, without understanding hmm. elements of jewelry and how, it, how things are made. But that, it really helped me. Now, when I'm designing championship rings or I'm designing pieces for people. One of the great, one of the things I always say is the last thing I'll ever look at is other jewelry. Mm-hmm. I want to be creative with no limits. Mm-hmm. Original. I want, I, I, want to be original. My, yeah. I, I want to be original. I draw my inspiration from nature, mm-hmm. from architecture, from furniture design, car design, whatever you can think of. But the last thing I'll ever look at is jewelry because I want to design with no restrictions, with no limitations, mm. so I can think outside of the box and create some of the pieces we've created over the last 20 years. So I hold six patents. I've made, I've designed tools that are used in millions and millions of surgeries all over the world. And what I always tell the young students that spend time with me, the greatest thing, Jason, about being original, it's hard, it's risky, I get it. But if you're original, you never can be told you're doing it wrong. You can't make a mistake. You know why? Because nobody ever did it before. So you have none of those <laughs> pressures of anybody saying you copied somebody. or That ain't going to happen. Let me ask you a question. Have you been to Italy? Have you seen the David? Have you seen the sculptures of Michelangelo? Absolutely. I've been to Italy. I just, I just spent three weeks in Italy over the summer with my family. Been to Italy, been to all throughout Europe. Uh, obviously, my mother's Norwegian, so I used to go to to Norway every summer. So, like, I've I've experienced a lot. I travel a lot, and that's where I draw, I draw a lot of my inspiration. Mm-hmm. When you go to places you've never been, 
Mm-hmm. When you go, when you see things that you, you haven't seen before, it immediately makes you creative. And I think mm-hmm. that when I come back from these trips, that's when I, I'm, I'm at my most creative is when mm-hmm. I get to experience and, and, and see new things. That's awesome, Jason. Listen, free orthopedic surgery for the rest of your life. It's, you're like a brother from oh, another mother. I just that. love talking to you. <laughs> before I let you go, though, I want you just to take us through this genius idea you have of representing not only the L.A. Rams, but when you lift the magnetic top off, you see the stadium. I'm going to get one of the paperweights because I'm not getting the full ring from you, but I'll get the paperweight <laughs> from you. But where did to the, the chutzpah that you have to come up with the idea of lifting off the top with a magnet so you can see the field inside, how did that happen? So, you know, when you're designing a championship ring, there's more than just designing a a regular ring. Like I said before, you have to tell a story. This ring has to tell a story. It has to tell a story of the season. It has to tell a story of the players, of the organization. And most importantly, it has to tell a story of the city and its fans. So how do you tell a story on something that's 40 millimeters by 40 millimeters and be able to tell such a robust, powerful story? Well, you have to have space to do that. So when we looked at the ring, we said, okay, we've used up all of the real estate that's left on the ring, the top, the sides, the bottom, the inside, everything Mm -hmm. we've used up. How am I going to create more real estate so I can tell a bigger, better story? How am I going to make this ring a conversation piece that when you're sitting fireside with your family 30 years later, you can sit down and talk about this ring and talk about that moment in time for, for, for hours on end? Well, I had to create more real estate. And what better way to create real estate than having the top be removable mm-hmm. and you then all of a sudden expose a whole new area mm-hmm. where you can tell a story. And mm-hmm. that's exactly what we did. The top comes off. It actually shows the home stadium. Mm-hmm. And on the Rams ring, what a lot of people don't know is that the green on the field is actually made up of remnants of the actual turf that the Super Bowl was played on. Mm-hmm. We, we took the turf. We grounded it down to a powder form, mixed it in paint, and painted the field. On the inside of the cap that comes off <laughs> is actually a piece of the cowhide of the actual football that was used in the Super Bowl. And it's these extra elements that create a sense of history, that make it a, a, not just a piece of jewelry, but a piece of sports memorabilia and captures a moment in time. And that's what makes these pieces so special. John Wooden. John Wooden from UCLA, your alma mater, used to say every day you get up, Make it your masterpiece. You know what, Jason? You've made a masterpiece of a career for yourself. God bless you. We are so proud of you for coming on today, for teaching us how to be motivated and inspired. What a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for making time for us this morning, Jason. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, great. Great to talk to you. Wow, that's just awesome. All right, we'll be in touch. Thanks so much, Jason. Coming up next, I'm going to take you into the operating room. What do you do, apropos to talking to Jason, when you have a patient who has an allergy to nickel, to metal, and yet the prosthesis has parts of nickel in the prosthesis? How do you solve that problem? I'll explain. Coming up next, the number is 877-710-ESPN. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN. 
Check this out. Weekend Warrior is on the air. From the epicenter of sports in the Southland. ESPN LA 7710. With Dr. Robert Clapper, board-certified orthopedic surgeon at Cedars-Sinai Health Associates. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Dr. Clapper says measure twice, cut once. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Il Dr. Clapper dice, misura due volte, taglia una sola volta. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Rebecca, thank you. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Wow. That was awesome. Jason, God bless you. You were terrific. And I want to thank the great Jared Abrams for helping me track Jason down. Jared, so proud of you as well. And the other person I'm super proud of is Dave Miller, Coach Dave Miller's daughter, Sammy, following in his footsteps at the University of Arizona where she is a student at the Walter Cronkite School. Actually, it's Arizona State, and she turns 21 today. Sammy Miller, happy birthday from all of us at the Weekend Warrior Show. I want you to understand, since I'm talking about jewelry, it's metal. It could be gold. It could be platinum. It could be silver. It's all kinds of stuff. It's jewelry that you wear on your finger or earrings. Nowadays, they put jewelry on all kinds of places. Don't get me started. But some people notice they'll have a filling put in their tooth and it be rejected because they have an allergy to the metal. Or they'll wear a ring or wear an earring and you'll see a skin breakdown where the metal is. Uh Uh-oh, I'm sensitive to whatever metal it is that's now on my skin. Well, here's a problem for me as an orthopedic surgeon. Your hip, you can't walk anymore. It's bone on bone. And in the case of the woman yesterday, 65-year-old woman, both of her hips were so destroyed, she cannot walk without crutches. She's practically in a wheelchair, but not yet. For years but she has a metal allergy to nickel. And a lot of the prostheses we use have small amounts in the cobalt chrome that we use of nickel. So what am I going to do? How am I going to solve the problem? Well, the obvious answer is, can you find a prosthesis that you can use that doesn't have nickel in it? And the answer is yes. Thanks to Jeff Busey at Biomet, I used in her hip something brand new and something old, but I was able to get around using any metal that had nickel in it. So for the new ball of the ball and socket that I used in her surgery yesterday, I used a ceramic ball, which is primarily what I use now anyway. Why would you use ceramic, Dr. Clapper? Because 
it's actually harder than metal. It doesn't scratch. It has less friction. And one of the reasons we had to redo knee implants, hip implants, shoulder implants over the years, I've been in practice 33 years, so I'm seeing people through these 33 years who had surgery in the 70s and the 80s when the materials were not as good as they are now. Rotary phones versus an iPhone. And the problem is they would wear the brake pad out. They would wear the plastic cartilage surface out. And you'd have to change the plastic, revise them. The newer plastic, here's a technical term, it's more highly cross-linked polyethylene. I won't go any further than that because it'll be too confusing to explain. But the actual material just keeps getting more and more improved and more durable, less prone to be scratched, to wear down. But one of the reasons the plastic of the new implant, the new joint, wears out is because the other end of it, the ball of the ball and socket joint, was metal. So by making the ball, the new smooth ball in the shoulder, in the hip, and even in the knee, the new surfaces, out of ceramic, it doesn't scratch. It's harder material. There's less friction on the plastic. We can now put these implants in and tell a patient, you're never going to have to redo this again in your life. It's awesome. So that was the first thing that I did yesterday. I used a ceramic ball. But here's really where the big breakthrough is. The metal I used was not cobalt chrome, not one that has pieces of nickel in it, but was made of titanium. It's a whole different metal that you're not sensitive to. It's quite inert. I don't really know of anybody who's allergic or could be allergic to titanium. And the newer plastic that we use is infused, believe it or not, with vitamin E. What does vitamin E do? It doesn't let the plastic dry out and crack, for want of a better term. So this woman's hip, and I'll end up doing her other side six months, nine months from now. I don't like to do them both at the same time if I can avoid it. She's going to have the similar construct of ceramic, titanium, and high-density polyethylene, highly cross-linked plastic infused with vitamin E. And it's going to allow her to dance, to hike, to ski, to play tennis, and last the rest of her life. What a challenge that one can solve by just realizing you can just use different components. And the beautiful thing for me is I'm not married to any particular company. A lot of surgeons, unfortunately, will do that. And they'll stay stuck with one for all kinds of reasons. I'm not, I'm not doing that. If I want to put a Lexus in, I can put a Lexus in. I'm not putting a Volkswagen. No offense to the Volkswagen people, but you know what I mean. And so it's great to be able to have the freedom to solve these problems. And it's interesting to talk to Jason 
about how he designed the Rams' Super Bowl ring, having that freedom to just come up with original ideas. Who knew you could take the top off of the ring, use a magnet to hold it back down, and to be able to see the field that they play on at SoFi as part of the ring. So innovative. What a joy to be able to talk to someone who does marry the different fields, the fields of art and the field of sports together. Coming up next, the number is 877-710-ESPN. If you tore your meniscus, are you a candidate not to have surgery? I'll explain. Coming up next, right here on the Weekend Warriors Show, the number is 877-710-ESPN. Check this out. Weekend Warrior is on the air. From the epicenter of sports in the Southland. ESPN LA 7710. With Dr. Robert Clapper, board-certified orthopedic surgeon at Cedars-Sinai Health Associates. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. With hair on top of my head. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers. Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Is this Beyonce? Oh, wow. Well, thanks to her, we know to put a ring on it. Good for her. Let me take you into the office this week. So many people I'll see. Pain in their knees, swelling, limping. Get an MRI. Oh, you got a torn meniscus. But I will be the lone voice, unfortunately, I wish there were more voices who will tell someone, as long as you can fully straighten and bend your knee, I'll be the lone voice to tell you, don't have surgery. I know it's torn your meniscus. Particularly if you're 45 years old or 50, sit tight. Get the book I wrote with Linda Yui called Heal Your Knees. Ride a bike, walk in the pool. Just like a blister hurts, becomes a callus, give it time. You will beat the system. You need your meniscus, even if one is torn and not so great. Now, if your knee is stuck, you can't straighten or bend it, that's a different story. And if it's been six months or a year and it's not better, that's also a different story. But do your best to try to keep that meniscus you have. All right, we don't have that much time left. We might as well, we need to take some calls. All right, let's go to Darren Jones. You're on with Dr. Clapper. How can I help? Hey, Dr. Clapper, how are you doing? Great listening to your show. Uh, thank I, you. How young are you? What do you do for a living? I'm 50 years old, and I am a probation officer, uh, along with being a full-time parent. I have a daughter who's playing softball at Howard University, and wow. I have a son who's JV in high school, so I'm pretty busy. Uh, proud of you, Darren. You're, doing, you're hitting all the boxes in life. Good for you. God bless you. <laughs> So uh, back in 2020, actually the beginning of the pandemic, I ruptured my patella tendon. Mm -hmm. And so I had had to have uh, full-blown surgery. Mm -hmm. However, it was during the pandemic, and my, uh, I don't, you know, certain resources of rehabilitation 
wasn't available to me. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, as two years removed, my knee is still an issue. Uh, it just doesn't feel right. If I could give you a picture of how my knee feels on a sunny day, that's how my knee feels. That's how my left knee feels. Mm-hmm. But my right knee, which is the knee of surgery, uh, looks like a cloudy day. And that's literally, I don't know how else to give it. it it's just like the motions is restricted, uh, uh, a lot stiffer all the time every day. Can you uh, fully can you fully straighten your knee, Darren? I can. How much can you now bend it? If a right angle is 90 degrees, how how many are you 80 degrees? Are you 120 degrees? How much bending do you have? I have uh based upon their measurements, I have complete bending. Okay. Well, this is fascinating then. I want you to do me a favor. You're a nice guy. You're a good guy. You don't need to find a total stranger and do something nice for him because you already talk the talk, but you walk the walk. I want you to do me a favor, and I don't want you to be Mr. Nice Guy from California. You need to be a tough New Yorker like me, Darren, okay? I need you to now insist that your doctor, primary care, whoever the hell it is in the crazy world we live in today, you need a new MRI of your knee, not with dye. You don't need contrast, which is painful and I believe unnecessary. But I want a look inside your knee without doing surgery. And an MRI will do that. And I want you to tell them, hey, I already got a second opinion from Dr. Clapper. Okay, you can pronounce it like Kobe, K-L-A-P-P-A-H, Dr. Clapper. You get an MRI of your knee. Mink radiology is my favorite, by the way. But that doesn't have to be. You can get it close to wherever you live. And I need you to then have the report in front of you. And you will call next Saturday, the Saturday after, whenever it is. And I'll have Tyler put you to the front of the list. And I will go over your MRI report with you with Clapper Vision. So you and I will understand what the next chess move is. How's that? Appreciate it. Great. Thank you very much. So no nonsense. No monkey business. No them telling you you got to do therapy first. You got to do that. No. You pay a fortune every month for insurance. We need the mafia to step up and actually get you an MRI. An x-ray is not enough because I love that you're telling me that you have full range of motion. I also love that when a patella tendon ruptures, Darren... You are working on the tendon, the soft tissues. This is not like telling me you broke your patella and now I'm going to give you bad news that you got post-traumatic arthritis and you're going to need me to put an implant in me. No. There's no reason for you not to have the scar tissue smooth down and end up with a perfect result from a patella tendon repair. So we, and please do not let anybody, you listen to the show, Darren, right? Yep. You better not let them talk you into $10,000 for stem cells, PRP, cortisone, synvis. I don't want any needles in your knee. Be holistic. Got you. But you and I need to look inside without surgery, and an MRI will, without contrast, you don't need dye, will do that for us. In the meantime, yeah, ride the bike, you know, use the pool, do everything in the book I wrote with Linda Yui, heal your knees, fine. But I don't even want to get into treatment yet for you, Darren, because how the hell do we know? Maybe there's something stuck in there. 
that they left. Maybe the stitches are too much for what you need. Who the hell? I have no idea. But you should not be having this far. It's 2022, for heaven's sake. You shouldn't be having any symptoms. You should be perfect. Okay? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, Darren. God bless you. Can't wait to talk to you with your MRI in front of you. And thank you. Listen to the show. No, he's gone. We lost him. Okay, cool. He's got us in struggle. I was going to ask him what his favorite story is because that's usually what comes out of my mouth. All right, let's talk about next week. Next week, what a pleasure. So ESPN had a baseball, a softball uh, game, which was awesome. And so many of you came, and I got to meet so many of you. But one of the highlights, there were many highlights of that softball game this year, was that each of us who played got a baseball bat made specially for us by Rutto Bats, R-U-T-T-O. Well, Kip Rutto made those bats. What an unbelievable gesture of kindness from a weekend warrior, from a fan of ESPN LA. And so I've hunted him down. I think he lives in Massachusetts. Kip is going to call next Saturday in BR Gets to talk about making out of wood a baseball bat. So it made me think already, wow, carving in wood, in art, in sports, in surgery. Well, who are we going to talk about next week? We're going to talk about a drummer, Mick Fleetwood, and making drumsticks. We're going to talk about Aaron Judge and Louisville Slugger Bats. But we're also going to talk about Donald Takayama shaping a surfboard in balsa wood. So until next week, I will see you on the radio.